Hello and welcome to today's episode of Learn from a Stranger. My today's guest is uh, called Sarah Reed and she is from Rabat in Morocco. Uh, Morocco is a kingdom uh, with a king Muhammad VI. 36 million people live in Morocco, but 99% of them are uh, the, the religion is Islam. Uh, most people in uh, Morocco grew up uh, trilingual, so speak both Berber, Amatic, Arab, and the European language. Most of them, uh, as far as I googled it, Spanish, French, English, and Portuguese. Morocco is the size of California. Um, it's on the West Atlantic coast. Also, Rabat is on the Atlantic coast. The Western Sahara is split between Morocco and Brozavi Front. And this browser rubbish front just is a little bit of ocean corner in the in the south uh, east. Something special about Morocco is it has five different borders to Spain because there's like some tiny little parts that are owned still uh, by Spain, but it's actually on Morocco main island uh, or main land. Some some are islands actually. The oldest university in the world, Al Karouin, is actually in Morocco, and. Something really funny is that the largest ski resort of entire Africa is also in Morocco because Morocco has lots of mountains, some grasslands, some deserts and lakes and rivers. It just has it all, including tree climbing goats. Such a fascinating country. Welcome, Sarah. I'm very happy to have you today. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Did I actually say that right? The Amazigh? Amazigh. Ah, yeah. Okay, so completely wrong. Okay, I tried. <laughs> I tried to Google how to say it. Yeah, it really was hard. But it's such a fascinating country you come from. Um, what's, uh, what's very um, very interesting to to research about it, especially the tree climbing goats really fascinated me. They actually hop on the trees and you have like 15 goats on the actual tree. <laughs> I really like that one. Yeah, I, I always enjoy like those pictures and, and stuff like that. Another thing that's very interesting about Morocco that it has lots of uh, surf beaches, um, very mm. good surf beaches. People come from all over Europe to um, Agadir. It's in the southern part of the country. And they enjoy the beautiful sceneries and the beautiful surf. So that too. Mm. I will put a few pictures of Morocco on the blog you will find at uh, learnfromastranger.com and you will be just as amazed as I was. It's uh, such a beautiful country. So how was it growing up in uh, Morocco? Um, it was it was kind of very enriching because of the, how the culture is influenced from different places in the world. Um, the education system was very fulfilling because you get to learn lot about a lot um i grew up in the capital so i had access to different cultures like people from all over the world because all the embassies are there so i had access to that also and perhaps that was the reason that i left morocco and moved to the u.s is because i was fascinated with with the culture here uh, we always say that we like things that we don't have. <laughs> so for me, Morocco is just normal. It just It's just somewhere I grew up. It had wonderful things about it. It had negative things about it. But, um, yeah. You told me that your father was an engineer. Um, what kind of engineer? Um, well, my dad, like, he worked for the Moroccan Air Force. 
and um, he worked on the F-14s, so um, avionics, uh, same as me, <laughs> uh, is the electronic systems of uh, aircraft. Oh, so you actually uh, in the footsteps of your father, you're an your, your, uh, airplane engineer as well? I'm also an avionics engineer, yes, correct. Oh, yeah, I guess I guess that was an influence there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My dad had like um, such a big influence on my life um, when it comes to either my passion for aviation or my passion for tinkering. Um, he he was a truly an engineer. He can turn something as simple as a piece of wood into something amazing. And I grew up watching him do that and it influenced me to kind of walk in his footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, how, how is it actually grew up in, in, in Morocco? As I said before, there was like, um, people speak a lot of languages. Is that true? Like it reads so easy, but is it actually like that? Yes, because um, the first language is Arabic and French. Like those are the official languages of the country. So when you go to school, From elementary school, you learn both, like you learn the traditional Arabic language and you learn mm -hmm. um, the French language. The language that's spoken in Morocco is kind of like a mixture between Arabic and a lot of influence from Spanish languages. And actually, the funny thing is that other Arabic people do not understand Moroccan because it's kind of very... It's, it's very heavy into like slangs and it's very different. Is there um, a written language different? Is it the same written language? Yeah. So it's different. Then there is um, some population that they, Amazigh, so they speak the Amaziri language. It's a holographic um, based language. I don't speak it myself. Um, and also, like when you go to high school, you pick up the third language. Either you pick German. You pick English, Spanish, Portuguese. So you have a choice of picking a third language. Then if you want, after you go to college, you can pick up a fourth. Oh, that's interesting. So you picked uh, English, I guess. I actually know. I learned English here in the U.S. I picked German out of... No way, really? I did. <laughs> I When I came here to the U.S., I didn't speak any English so I had to take English classes at the university and it took a while but it's been about 16 years since I came to the US yeah, I think I'm, I'm managing it well <laughs> what's the what's the what was the the cultural like the when, when I moved to Norway from Austria it's not very far away culturally but I still had like these moments of I would call it a culture shock When things happen, you just don't expect and, and you don't know from home and which feels so so different and so wrong in a way the first time. How how was it for you moving to a complete different culture very far away from home? Um, I was very young. I think if somebody told me like to do it right now, I will highly doubt I will do it. I was very young and I had like the courage to just my sister and I came together Um I grew up How very sheltered. I was 21 <laughs> and my sister was 17. So two little Moroccan girls came to the U.S. not speaking the language and just figured it out, I guess. 
Um, but we came through school, um, through like a, a school program. So like for the first eight months, we were like taking intensive English classes. They had a representative that helped us get a house, get a vehicle and just get situated. So it was kind of, it was kind of helping. Then we met a few Moroccan people and a few Arabic people um, that we kind of formed this little community. And little by little, you're, you learn. But the thing about the culture, um, I grew up, my sister and I, we grew up very sheltered. Uh, my parents kind of didn't let us have lots of interactions with what you could say the negative points of the culture. Um, they were very educated. They were very open-minded. Um, we listened to MTV. We had like access to um, all the movies and stuff. So it was not much of a culture shock because we were exposed to it through like media and songs and back when MTV played music. <laughs> so um, I think just the combination of all these made the transition much easier. Yeah, so so you would you say that like, um, because I've never been in Morocco, so I actually wouldn't know, but is it like um, a Western-oriented uh, country? Absolutely. Or more uh, like yeah, middle, middle African? Mm. Um, absolutely, especially in the big cities. If you go to Rabat or Casablanca or Marrakech, Fez, those are big cities that have... Um, kind of like lots of Western influence, even in the architecture. Morocco was occupied by the French for a long time. So they kind of left certain under, undertone, like a, a certain French undertone to the cities. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it does have like a lot of Western influence to it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's actually interesting. Because when I, when I did my research, I found... Uh, that the the buildings were um, actually I, I would say probably more eastern middle middle eastern influenced it looked uh, looked very arabic to me on the on the architectural structure yes so the thing is like um, a normal city in morocco you'll have two sides you have the old city which has has which you see in the pictures usually the old city has like lots of Spanish, um, Arabic influence in the architecture. It has a wall around it with big ginormous doors. Then you have the city, which is um, just modern buildings with modern amenities and, and, and such. Um, I think the pictures do not do Morocco justice because part of the charm that I find it charming is that I can be in the city where my parents live and I can go have coffee and you feel like you're in a European city. But 10 minutes down the road, you can just walk into the old Medina, they call it Medina, and you can almost smell the old culture, like the spices, the buildings, how the roads are narrow. You, um, you can't really drive in the old cities like you can't really take any cars like you'll have to park in and walk because um they're very narrow <laughs> yeah um that sounds that sounds very nice so um we we both met uh, in virtual reality actually so I actually talked to you before it's not the first time we're talking 
And what I remember probably the most of our conversations is that you actually married the whitest guy you could find. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, how did that happen? Like, <laughs> um, how, so, how did your, um, your family take that? <laughs> actually, it's very funny about my family. My brother is married to a German uh, woman, and my sister, her husband is of Taiwani um, heritage. He's American, but his parents came from Taiwan. So my poor grand, my poor mom, her grandchildren, she have German grandchildren, American grandchildren. And when my sister has a, a kid, it will be like Taiwani. <laughs> so we always joke that we are the UN. And going back of how I met my husband and why did I find the whitest guy I could find? I just, I guess we're all attracted to different things. Just because perhaps I have olive skin and brown eyes, I always find blonde and blue eyes very attractive. And um, I guess uh, that was the case for him. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just I, I'm I, I'm never I was never like that. Like I was always kind of staying with my my group, but I've also never traveled much in my life. So. Um, like I'm basically always stayed in Europe. I never left Europe, and I think that way I never managed to get away from my heavy influence of Europeans. <laughs> I would guess, which is kind of sad, but it just you know, I grew up on a little farm. We just didn't travel that much, I guess. Well, uh, different cultures, like especially like when you have a multicultural household, there is challenges to it. It's not easy. Because sometimes, like, you want to say a joke in your native language or an inside joke that comes from your culture and just goes over their head and you're like, you should be laughing. That's very funny. And I used to tell him, I, in, like, in Moroccan, I am super funny. In, in English, not much. <laughs> very awkward. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I understand that. I have actually the same the same problem, like... Austrian humor is super dark, yeah. I would say, like morbid in a way, not just in a way, like it's a super morbid humor. And I just find that so funny, um, yeah. like morbid humor, especially political morbid humor. is just like I could I could laugh for hours easy. And I have this tiny little comic strip they produce in, in um, the region I come from, also with written in dialect, which is not actually an official language. It's just a made-up language. Mm -hmm. And I get it sent to Norway once a month. It's kind of a gift I give myself every year. And I just laugh so hard every time I read it. And then my husband, who understands German, reads it too. And he's like, this is not funny. This is, best case scenario, mean or boring, but this is not funny. <laughs> So it's really hard. Like I'm also in Norwegian and English. I'm not a funny person, which is super sad. Yeah. But uh, get me drunk. I believe I'm the funniest person drunk. So. <laughs> uh, me too, because I those self-conscious English um, uh, limitations just disappear. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, we do have a lot of fun uh, in in we are um, yeah. very old. I think we're funny. Like it's basically everybody's a foreigner there, uh, or most of them are, and most people speak English as a second language. True. Uh, just a few Americans who don't speak another language in English. <laughs> we kind of bow to them and uh, and and use our English. 
And I think we have fun there. So I think if everybody's a foreigner, it suddenly changes. Absolutely. Um, I think VR um, is one of my outlets, being super busy, being a mom, um, and going through my, my career and stuff like that. It is such a, a refreshing outlet because you get to just be you, meet people from all over the world, talk and joke and build relationships. Perhaps it's VR, but it's real relationships that are built there. Um, so, yeah, like I just got my brand new Quest 2 and I'm extremely Aww. excited about it. I tested it yesterday and I am extremely excited about it. Oh, I'm so jealous. I still have the Quest 1 and I didn't even order the Quest 2, so I will probably sit this one out. So it's great. So for the listeners who don't know, we are very well. It's um, a virtual reality headset. It's something you put over your ears, you cover uh, eyes, you cover your eyes with it. And you have uh, sound as well. So some headsets come with headphones uh, built in and with others you can add them later or you just have sound. Um, and what it does is you have a 360 degree reality around you so you might sit on your sofa or stand in the middle of your room but it looks very different and an app that um, both me and sarah use and where we met is called big screen um it just is one of many social apps on in virtual reality there's there's many of them but this is the one we we met at and it's basically a, a virtual cinema so if you're handicapped or you can't afford going to cinema or you are in a lockdown, for God's sake, that's a reality we have. You can just go there and you can purchase a movie and you can sit in a movie and it feels like you meet in a in a lobby where you, you meet other people. You can play with popcorn and you can when the movie starts, you can walk in the actual movie room and enjoy a movie. But there's also op option to not buy a, a ticket, but to just go in a, in a public room and just you know sit there hang with people watch youtube videos or whatever um or not sometimes we'd also just sit around the fire and like you know stare in the fire and talk about life so this is a, a very different reality to people that are used to just 2d screens and computers uh, but it does for for people who use it a lot it does feel a lot like you actually are in a cinema or you actually are in a bar um, I always call it my virtual bar, actually, because I usually have a beer with people there or, or, or even not in alcohol. I just, it feels like you meet people in a bar because there's your regulars coming there, you know, from before, and there's always one or two other people stepping in and you meet the first time and it's very, very nice. So that said, that's where uh, we both mothers sometimes leave our reality and actually go and meet strangers. <laughs> yes, some days, as soon as I finish bedtime, I can't wait just to get on VR and just to leave everything behind and just enjoy my conversations with my friends, listen to music, watch a movie. And we have so much fun. Like there, there is a group of us that are regulars and we kind of, sometimes we even go to different apps. Like now we started going to VR chat and it's like a little bit, like a little bit of a different platform, but it's it's fun. It's very fun. I also had um, I joined some stand up evenings in Old Space VR, which is an app that's made by Microsoft, but it's also a virtual reality app, which is completely different again. Like they really all feel so different in how the avatars look and how the environment looks. 
but there was like actually people just you know going a scene having their performance in dancing singing playing the guitar it was like so many different things really i i saw there it was really great <laughs> and funny enough we have the year 2020 technology came so far but they still make fart jokes in vr and still are <laughs> just as yes. funny as they are in real life <laughs> like the one of the the jokes i like the best is when somebody goes to toilet or just leaves the room for a second and leaves the headset in the room it's like to just call siri or okay google and just you know order stuff or say hey play fart sounds (laughs) and then their uh their home home system just suddenly starts talking with us (laughs) while we are on the other side of the planet (laughs) which is it's such a security issue actually but it's just so funny um but yeah uh, back back to you sarah um you kind of seem like a person to me that is like kind of handling it all you have kids you're married you're working you're studying you move to a different country you speak four languages uh, how do you do that like how is your day actually work out you still have so many things to do and you still find time for yourself and and we are well, by nature, I'm a very, very organized person. I have a spreadsheet for my spreadsheets. I keep my calendar. Um, I kind of try and um, do block times. Like, for instance, I would wake up, take care of the girls, do breakfast, take them to school, come back home. Um, back when I was uh, working, um, I would just go to work. When I come back, um, we do dinner, family time, then my VR time. Um, <clears throat> currently, I'm not working anymore because I wanted to focus 100% on my PhD studies. So when I drop them off, I come home, clean the house, make some food for dinner and sit down and study. Um, I kind of block six hours of study a day, one hour of self-care. And by that time, my uh, it's time to pick up the girls. In the weekends, I will have to you just going to have to find, delegate certain things. Like, for instance, I have this lady that comes and help me clean the bathrooms and do light cleaning because that time, if I spend it myself doing that cleaning, well, that's time that's taken away from either like playing with the girls or studying or just having some, some time for myself to relax because it can be taxing. Um, Especially like I, I'm not in my 20s, <laughs> so it can be taxing on your health if you keep going 100% all the time. Oh, yeah. Self-care is key and being organized um, and learn how to say no is a very important point because as a mom or as a friend or as a partner, sometimes you feel bad about saying, no, I can't this is my time it's for me so that's like the most challenging part because you feel bad and you feel like you're neglect- neglecting um aside like one aspect of of your life and actually that was like the main reason why i i stopped working and just focus on school because it was just too much and before you worked as a as an engineer um what well, m- my background is um, uh, applied physics and um, um, avionics engineering. Um, 
is kind of like mostly like my my education in that field um but yeah like um lately like when i decided to to just focus <clears throat> on my studies and stuff i went crazy and and started this consultant firm <laughs> Um, which is has to do with diversity and inclusion and engineering and, and um, the aerospace industry. So I'm hoping that I can get that off the ground. It's been four months since I started it, and I'm trying to do something with it in the middle of studies and mommy time. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a lot. It's It's amazing that you managed to pull so much off. Like I tried to study next to work and the kids and I, I couldn't, it was too much for me. I couldn't study on top of it. I just didn't work out. <laughs> and I it was just a bachelor I'm talking about, not the PhD. <laughs> I, I really enjoy it. Like I'm a, an eternal learner. I think like right when I finish my PhD, I'll do postdoctorate, I'll do research. It's for me, it's an escape, like just to learn about something new and my degree is like they're not related to each other I have one bachelor's in applied physics the other one is in um, aviation airway management opera operations the one of them is engineering management it's just um, I like to explore different aspects and find the gap in the literature and study it and it brings joy to my life Some people like purses, some people like shoes, jewelry. I like books. <laughs> you collect bachelors, others collect shoes. <laughs> Actually, yes. And not only am I doing a PhD, but I'm doing a master's degree in parallel. So I don't know. I sometimes like I think to myself, why am I doing this? Like when it gets hard. But it's It's a sense of fulfillment. That's what I like to do in life. You can't really tell somebody, oh, it's too much because you don't know how their brain works. For me, when I study, it just it brings me like a sense of serenity. Once I start like going deeper and deeper in a subject, um, it just makes me happy. That's so great to hear. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel very dumb talking to you. <laughs> no, I, everybody is smart in their own way. Um, I might have this going on for me, like when it comes to academia, but perhaps like socially, um, I'm not really that intelligent socially. <laughs> Or it depends, like everybody has a talent, and I guess mine is just books. Oh, that's great. Uh, we need those people, very important. <laughs> Um, there's another another thing I wanted to talk about with you, and um, it doesn't come as a surprise to anybody who knows me just a little bit, and that's I'm I'm a foodie. I love cooking. I love watching movies about food, how food is made. I love going to farms and just you know learn about how people prepare, prepare food. So one little genre I have in in my podcast is uh, is the pantry. I want to know how people eat at home. And I ask each of my guests to share one of their favorite recipes with me. And I will put it on the blog. So if anybody doesn't catch the entire recipe when Sarah tells us that, 
don't mind, it, it will be on learnfromastranger.com. So you'll find it there. And I'm actually very excited about that one because you shared it up front with me. So I could actually get a little bit of sneak peek to it. And it's uh, as far as I understood, uh, lemon chicken with olives. Yeah, it's a chicken with preserved Meyer lemon and olives, and it's one of my favorites. Um, my mom, like, she adds potatoes to it, and those are my favorite. Um, it's uh, it's kind of like a bright and earthy braise. Um, it has lots of aromatics and that a hint of the citrus with the texture of the chicken and the texture of the potatoes. Um, we usually eat it with Moroccan bread. It's a flatbread, like wheat-based flatbread. And, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite. Every time my mom comes over, that is, like, the first dish I ask her for because it's just it, it, it brings me home and it brings me to my childhood. And um, I have, like, such a connection with that dish. And I'm also a foodie, so I did try lots of different cuisines and – but in the end, that's my favorite dish. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. It's like uh, so many different spices in it. Like it's all from from ginger and cloves and paprika and and salt and pepper and cumin, cumin. even. Uh, <laughs> and, and saffron. And saffron. Oh, that's where the yellow comes from. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a lot of uh, a lot of different spices uh, spices in it so I can't wait trying it myself I didn't have the chance yet but I will definitely try this dish um, so and it's topped with like some cilantro mm. the key element in that dish what makes it so special is the lemons they're salt like they're preserved in salt those Meyer lemons um, they preserve them in salt for like months and that's what gives it that that I wish you could smell the dish because it's amazing but the taste, what it gives it that tangy and distinguished uh, taste, is com it comes from those lemons. Can you prepare them yourself? Because I think I've never seen it in the, in the store. Um, is it just toss in a few washed lemons in, in a pack of salt and wait? Or is it any more to do? To be honest with you, I have never made them. Every time I go to Morocco... I will bring spices. I bring um, certain things that I can't really find here. But in the last few years, I can just go to a Mediterranean shop and find everything. Uh, perhaps like when I first moved here about 16 years ago, there weren't that many places that sell these things. But you can literally go to Whole Foods and find stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I have to, I have to look a bit. Um, uh, I did find a, a recipe for it uh, online, um, but it basically just, you know, I, I, I wouldn't dare keeping it in my fridge for like a year, as they say, or like for a few weeks. So <laughs> I think I would actually feel more comfortable with buying them. Uh, but there are recipes. If anybody want to make it, uh, make it themselves, there is um, a recipe on myrecipes.com uh, for speedy preserved Meyer lemons. Uh, and it really is basically just lemons and salt. So you should, if you dare, you should be able to make it yourself and put it in the fridge and just, you know, sit it out. Uh, but I will probably try to buy it somewhere <laughs> just to just to get the taste of that. That's amazing. Actually, the um, uh, Morocco is still part of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Union, uh, if I remember that correct in my research. Um, is it like a heavy influenced kitchen, like 
the Mediterranean kitchen is 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 very vegetable based. Um, I, I actually ate it for a while and I'm still a bit on it because it's so tasty. Uh, but I never thought before research Morocco that Morocco Moroccanian kitchen is part of it. Uh, I just always thought it's much spicier and more lamb and maybe more meat. Um, so, so I'm actually a bit surprised about that. Yeah, like uh, the the meat is usually not like the 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 main the main part of a meal. There's lots of vegetables, lots of stews. Um, I think. Um, there is the couscous, which is like the national dish. Um, it's one of my favorites too. Is the heart of wheat with some vegetables and and a protein. Um, and the funny thing is, on Fridays for lunch, the entire country they have it for lunch. It's like a tradition. On Friday they do the Friday prayers, and then they go home and have couscous. So it doesn't matter what's your socioeconomic background. I bet you if you go to somebody's house for lunch on Friday, they have the couscous for, for lunch, which is, I, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, that's really... In in, in, in Austria, we don't have something like that, like our basic... Uh, in a way, probably, on Sunday, we have our uh, festive lunch, usually. That's like the, the main lunch uh, where you invite people. But in Norway, you don't have that. And in Norway they have a Friday taco. That's like a thing. The entire nation eats tacos on Fridays, which is funny because like, it's not a traditional dish, tacos. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I read a study where they said 80% of all families, like uh, households with kids, eat tacos on Fridays. That's funny. In, <laughs> That's really uh, funny. in America, like here in the US, it's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> Oh, Lots it of is. They do Taco Tuesday. That's funny. Yeah. Where in, uh, in the US uh, did you actually end up with? I what am part? currently in the Atlanta metropolitan area in Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. I actually have no idea where that is. It's um, it's a, it borders um, Florida. And um, it has some borders with South Carolina. But, oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's in the southern, it's the, it's the south of the U.S. Yeah. The Bible it's actually Belt. a mild climate. And, mm. it's, a, it's a mild uh, climate. Like and, uh, is it comparable to Morocco, actually, where you also have mm. no. winter but no snow and no freezing? It's not a coastal city. It's more of like, um, actually, I live in the foot of a mountain. Um, the area that I'm, I live in right now is called Kennesaw. And it's about 20 minutes from Atlanta. And um, it's a uh, it's mountain. It gets, cold, it gets cooler in the region that I'm in, but not as cold. In Morocco, the weather is kind of mild. The winters are not too cold. The summers are not too hot. We have the breeze from the Atlantic Ocean, and Rabat is right on the ocean. So there is some humidity, but it's not comparable to Florida, per se, or even here in Georgia. It's, it gets humid. I've been in Gran Canaria uh, last winter in January, and that's pretty close to Morocco, actually. It's yes. not far away from the ocean. So it's just the ocean between, but it's it's 
it's not a far right there. Um, and the the climate in in January for me it was summer. It was just so great. <laughs> I could actually go in a t-shirt or dress out and sandals. And it was always a light breeze, but it was actually really nice. And there was even some tiny little part in in Onkonkadari that has a, a desert where it's like Sahara mm-hmm. sand there. Um, and I was so surprised how different the Sahara sand is from normal sand. It's like you cannot even compare it. It was no. so different. Um, um, I loved I, it. I, I made like a hundred pictures. <laughs> I remember when I was growing up, when I was very young, like um, my teen years, um, my dad was stationed there in the Sahara Desert. And we used to go visit him in the summer. And we used to go to the dunes and just play in them. And one, what, those were my one of my favorite childhood memories because we had so much fun. And I remember the sunset is one of the most beautiful sunsets I still have to see. Um, and I, I remember it quite often. Yeah, it's really strange. Like the, the, the this fine sand, it's so fine that it blows in your mm-hmm. ears and it sets on your your everything really. Like on, a, on, a, on any little tiny hair you have on your body, it, there will be sand. <laughs> it's so strange. It was really, really a, a overwhelming experience for me to go and see a desert, even if it's a small one. It was amazing. And also, it was so hard to walk in it. I, I cannot imagine people that live there. Like, how can you walk? It's so heavy. Your feet are heavy. You sink in. It's it's so so much worse than a normal beach. Yeah, true. I found. Hmm. But um, when you live somewhere, you're acclimated to it. You're introduced to it as a child. You grow up thinking that's your normal. The funny thing about um, being able to travel and see different cultures is that you see what's normal for different people. Like perhaps like it can sound shocking for me um, to see something, but for the people that grew up with this culture, it's very normal. That's that's life and that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, did you ever see the snow? Uh, it snows in Morocco, actually, um, in the yeah. mountains, in the Atlas Mountains. It does yeah. snow, and um, I've seen it for the first time. I think I was 16 or 17, and I went on an excursion uh, with school, and we went to visit uh, Ifran. Uh, that's the city where where it snows, and it was amazing. I was I was mesmerized by it. Um, it doesn't snow here where I am because I lived in Florida and then I lived here in Georgia. Last year, though, it did snow here in Georgia, in Atlanta. And it was amazing because me and the girls, we went outside to the yard and played in the snow. And, and it was fun. Mm. That's very different, isn't it? Like, did you did you go skiing when you were in, on? Mm-hmm. I know I have never been skiing. Yeah, I grew up in Austria. Like we always have snow. I was always like, eh, whatever, it's snow. Uh, but I think it probably is like uh, close to the feeling I had when I saw the desert for the first time. It's like it's so different from anything I've seen ever. <laughs> I can imagine that uh, seeing snow for the first time, it must be close to the feeling. Absolutely. That's so great. Uh, can I ask you what you make your PhD in? 
Um, my PhD um, concentration and study is the is like an exploration into diversity versus inclusion in the aerospace engineering field. That's my so actually the 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 same the same field as you you made your company at. Yes, that's why I was like while I'm doing my PhD and doing all this research. Um, it would be nice um, to have like the consulting firm. It would be like um, an opportunity to gather data and gather a perspective. Uh, and at the same time, I, I can make a little bit of extra money so I can buy new VR sets <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. But um, it's an organization. I just registered it with the state and I'm working on the website. It's, it's still a baby. It's not even born yet. So um, I'm very excited about that one too. And um, when when it comes to inclusion in in your field, uh, what is missing to make it to make it perfect? To not need you anymore or need your study anymore? What is? Uh, do you already have an answer to that? It's. Or is it too early to say? It's not like yet complete. Um, I'm in the very beginning of my journey, but I think I think the the main issue right now that we have diversity. People have been talking about diversity for so long. We do have diversity. We have people of color. We have women. We have people with disability. But the issue that arises from that is that there is no inclusion. Yes, we do have a diver diverse workforce but the upper management and the the managers and people that actually make the decision um usually like there is no diversity whatsoever i remember like in my morning meetings um when i was working and um i won't say the company i literally was the only dark-skinned women in the room it was middle-aged men all 16 of them And it was me. And I felt so out of place. And then it's kind of like you're you're not taken really seriously because of the the gender perceptions, I guess. And you, it's almost like you're not treated as an engineer. You're just like a secretary or something. And um, oh, well, that was like, yeah. that was what inspired me to go ahead and make this my 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 calling because somebody has to bring these issues into light sometimes when you tell people about diversity they were like okay yeah we have diversity look at our numbers but is it really inclusion so that's um i mean young women starting their career in technology They already overcame numerous hurdles, stereotypes, general generalization, um, discrimination, even. But the issue when it starts like to become really a problem is when you start working, um, and you see the same things that you thought will be different. Um, and let's not forget the gender pay gap too. Um, so <laughs> that's a whole topic that's a whole PhD yeah, topic oh yes it is um, I actually I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't know that about me but I actually I work in games industry the last several years and 
I actually started a group myself, uh, which is uh, Women in Games Norway, because there was none, um, non group. Well, there was there was women, but there was no group for it. And I just, I actually started it because I felt I want to hire women, mm-hmm. and especially as Norway, we are we're very aware of of it's important to to be diverse, and people do try. But what happens is. In these small studios, you you cannot really afford the entire process of just, you know, put an ad out there and say, hey, one of our good games, because you will receive so many applications and it will be so expensive to deal with it that people usually try to avoid that process if you're not really hiring on big scale. So what, what happens is, okay, we need a game designer. We need a coder. We need an artist. And then we just ask around in our friend circle, like the other people working in games that or that we know do education or we ask in the in the schools. But usually just before we come that far, the one buddy bro is right now considering to change anyway. Or we know that this other game studios where our bro works, he the the, the um, he will be uh, available in like a month because the project will end, you know? So all it's not a bad thing to hire friends if you know they're good, but the thing is, like, if you just have male employees, you will get male mm. people again, and that's exactly what happened. And my 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 boss at the time, he was very aware of it, so he really supported me starting this. Um, he even pushed me a little bit for it, and it was really 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 great. So, what we tried is is to just you know collect ourselves to to know many, many women so I can ask around when there's a job opening. And of course, it it, it gets more than that. You know, we, we actually found out we're like 70, 100, 200 people in the, in the industry in Norway that we're aware of and we invited them and we make like this lunches and dinners and all the, all the conventions um, before Corona at least. So we can, you know, be role models. And I think that actually works to to go into schools early enough before they make the decisions what they actually want to work with and just, you know, say, hey, there is this male nurse and there is this female engineer as well. They are out there and you can be whatever you want. And if you're technically interested, this is where the money lies as well in future, then go out there and do the education you're interested in and make the money you deserve. You do not have to I don't know, get a hairdresser or be a hairdresser or, you know, you, you can do whatever you want to. The The role is open for you. So um, I really hope that we... Mm. I was looking at some Sorry. research that have been done like a few years ago and they said like the best the best time to introduce STEM education, especially for women, to close the gap in like the talent um, gap in the in tech industry is to introduce it in middle school. You can't wait mm-hmm. until high school, um, and that's why lately there have been lots of STEM uh, schools. My oldest daughter, she goes to a STEM school, and they introduce engineering, they int- introduce what technology. Is a, what is a STEM school? It stands for science, um, technology, mathematics, and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, they introduce these topics into the curriculum and um but also like it's not all gloomy out there now for some good news women are doing better than ever like especially in education when it's concerned like 
we see lots of women starting to go into uh, studying engineering or studying mathematics or physics and stuff like that that it wasn't there like a few years ago and I believe because there is some people are talking about the subject and the issue has come up to light and people are starting to do something about it which is very refreshing I would love for my daughters I have two daughters and I would love for them to be able to go to any field they want to my oldest one she is very like like me she likes tech and I would love for her to have the same hurdles and the same issues that I had to deal with um, so yeah there is some good news out there yeah absolutely it's uh and, and of course like if you want to get a hairdresser then please go and be the best hairdresser in the world like it's nothing bad about it it's just you know see the options i think that's what we we as mothers also try right like just be yourself and and don't let yourself be pushed away or tell yourself you can't do it just because it's not common i think that what what might be the message behind it absolutely um, i i what i did see is in 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 uh, in diverse teams like i worked for a while i worked in um in a retirement home and we've been basically just girls and women and it was harsh it was really hard sometimes uh, first of all i'm not used in that i'm not used in in girl groups i'm not a girly girl i guess so for me that the way women talk with each other uh when they are so used to being just women it's partially it's, it's it's radical. It can be really really harsh, and it's a lot of back talking. And I'm I'm not good with that. Like I cannot remember the secrets others told me <laughs> when it's like <laughs> these tiny little things. You know, like if it's a big secret, of course I can remember it. But it was these tiny things, like you know what this woman didn't clean away this, or do you know what she came too late, or like things I really don't care about <laughs> at all. So. I got in troubles really fast because I couldn't remember the code. Um, <laughs> and the second you have a guy in the team, and we did have a guy in the team uh, a little bit later, but he worked very little, but he worked in my shift on the weekends. And I was also mostly working in the weekends. Uh, and then it changed. The entire group dynamic changed the second there was a guy in the room. And um, later, when I worked in, in, in games, I was the only full-time employee, and I had a, a co-worker, an artist. She was part-time, and we were the only women, and we were 15 people at the time. And what happened really fast, especially in meetings with customers that were also just male, was um, they, they ask you things like, like actually ask you things like, how, how do you see that as a woman? As a woman? And I'm like, um, I, I don't know. I can tell you how I see it as me. <laughs> I have no idea how my entire gender, 51% of the world's population see it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and and that gets so much better when it's two in the room of each. You know, when it's like an older person, a younger person, and a, a woman or two, and a guy or two. And when just the entire structure of age and gender breaks up. Um, and and um, actually in games, the industry is super aware of it. They just have troubles finding finding the girls out there the women out there because they hire bodies exactly so, and the thing with women um what i 
what I noticed is that for my guy friends, if there is an opportunity or if there is something like um, a new uh, position or, or something like that, they will advocate for their friends and they will like go play together, go play golf um, and push each other towards like a successful career. What I noticed with some some female groups is that there is that mentality of there is only one princess in the room. <laughs> and I could never understand that. Like it's only one. There is only that one princess. And there is not much of being your sister's champion or being your sister's um, um, support. I didn't see that much. I know like I might get lots of um, criticism about saying that. But it's the reality that I have lived it. Mm. Um, when I was trying to do um, some research, I reached out to people in LinkedIn. 90% of the guys responded. One woman responded. Like I needed some help, like um, perspective from um, about a subject. And I wrote the same email to everybody and I sent 50-50. And I was amazed that None of the women wanted to reach and help me. Yeah, all the guys, they reached out and helped me and gave me, like, more information than I ever, like, needed. And they were, like, going out of their way, literally. But just one lady um, reached out to me and, and offered It would be help. interesting to, to do the same experiment as a guy and reach out to 50-50 and see how responses absolutely how, how people I respond to that would actually be really interesting yeah, maybe we should find a guy <laughs> well we know a few guys <laughs> <laughs> well i met one before so it shouldn't be too hard <laughs> uh, that's interesting i have to say i don't really i probably grew up like i, I didn't grow up where, where the gender problem was such a big problem of course i i experienced issues with it but not compared to to a lot of other women i meet um so i have to say this this princess in the room phenomenon i actually don't know i will have to think of it i think um if if that ever happened to me for me it's more uh we we probably sucked especially when i was younger uh the girls group sucked in 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 helping each other i think i can agree on that um but later when we grew up and got older that wasn't the issue anymore And it might be because I actually chose my friends very wisely. <laughs> so um, from, from each group, big group I've been in before, I usually just pick this one or two I actually really, really like a lot. And I kept contact with them and not the rest of the group so much. So maybe that's yeah, why. I always had guy friends, even in high school. I remember this girl, like she knocked on our door. I think she wanted to borrow a book. And she asked my mom, is Sarah there? She was like, you mean... Uh, Hajar my sister she was like no no Sarah and she was like no no do you mean you're a girl <laughs> like Sarah doesn't have any girlfriends <laughs> it was like more like she was baffled like a girl asking for Sarah that's that's weird <laughs> but I always had like such a good relationship with my guy friends because I am a very direct person I don't I don't go around the bushes. I it's, Whatever I think, it just comes out. And with girls, like, you have to be very careful. 
because they might not take it well. But with my guy friends, I can just say it. If they're upset, they will brush it off and it's gone. Like we just kiss and make up and it's over. With girls, it's different. There's dynamics and strategy. <laughs> it's almost like you're you're at war. <laughs> When we go back to the topic of uh, of you moving from one country in the different in, in the next one, how was it with like the dress code? Uh, when I researched Morocco, it um, I saw pictures of people there and they looked very Arab. I would say in the dress code. Mm -hmm. So, like, stuff I would know from, like, Egypt and the Middle East kind of dress code. Not very Western, actually. Um, how How is that really? And is it just, like, tourist pictures or is it actually like that? It's tourist pictures. Like, when you when you promote, when you market a country, you don't want to market, like, a cafe downtown Casablanca that looks just like if you're in Paris or Rome. You want to bring that European tourist into a fantasy, into uh, an image of an experience. So, of course, you're not going to put those images for marketing. You're going to put pictures of camels in the Sahara. You're going to put pictures of monkeys, and you're going to put pictures of indigenous people in their traditional um, wear. But it's a mixture. I did notice that lately, like the last 10 years or so, There's lots of more like head covering that has been happening, but I haven't lived there for so long. I can't really say why or what made like that change. Because I remember when I grew up, like we could just wear anything we want, our shorts. But again, I lived in the city and It was kind of like normal. I wear a short skirt. I could wear tight jeans. Um, I had short hair, like a pixie cut, all my life. So it was kind of perhaps like it's my family and my circle. But I always like to say there is two different Moroccos. There is the Morocco I grew up in, and then there is the Morocco you see in commercials. Yeah, I bet it is. Um... I see the same like in, in Austria. We're not all wearing a dindle and sing Mozart songs and, and you know, play play the piano all day either. Surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does influence though. Like, I guess it does. It, it does. Like, a lot of people do play instruments and know, and a lot of people do wear that, you know, traditional clothing on the. And the weekends, especially when there's party, not like normal weekends, but like when there's um, uh, parties outside or these tent parties we, we have in summer and stuff like that. A lot of people wear it then. And it got super popular again with the, the, the teenagers. For, mm. for whatever reason, like when I was a teenager, like the worst thing that you could do is to wear traditional clothing because, you know, like our parents would do that. <laughs> and I guess mm. now it's like my parents never did that. So I gonna do it. <laughs> I have no idea. I actually really don't know. <laughs> I do own like few traditional like um, the kaftans. Uh, it's a traditional like uh, party dress. I do have few, but I have never wore any of it. Even when my brother got married, usually like in weddings, everybody wears that. I wore like um, a, a dress, like a strapless dress. I don't 
think that it's me is just like it's very restrictive and I'm very fidgety and I just can't imagine myself being like just in that dress it's kind of very restricting I enjoy having them and I they're not quite cheap and I have few but they're just in their little box maybe like one of the, my girls will want to wear it one day or if I'm representing Morocco somewhere perhaps I'll just put it on but I prefer not to still Sarah do you have any tips to us who want to visit Morocco yes my advice is that when you go to Morocco just don't limit yourself to the tourist areas try and venture into like the real Morocco especially if you go in with a group if you go in with a group you guys are gonna go see the old Roman ruins you're gonna see Um, like museums, you're going to see galleries and stuff like that. But take the time and go into, just walk into the street. Uh, it's very safe. Um, and talk to people. Moroccan people are very, very friendly. Just talk to anybody in the street. Literally, like, you can just approach somebody and ask them and they will just tell you. And try and visit like different cities, like don't limit yourself to Marrakesh or Agadir. Try visit like those small little cities that are tucked in somewhere and experience the beauty of them. There are some cities that are as beautiful as Greece with the clear waters and the beautiful buildings. So that's my advice. And chances are high that. They actually speak your native language uh, because Moroccans uh, talk many, many languages as we learned today. And now these days, like more people like want to learn English just because of the globalization of everything. So lots of younger people do speak English. Yeah, that's um, probably very helpful for lots of tourists. But yeah, you also said lots of them learn Spanish or German. So chances are you actually will be make yourself understood there which is amazing mm -hmm. so I think that's a very good point to to end our podcast for today's episode Sarah it was amazing having you thank you so much for spending uh, the time with me and tell me all about your life and your country uh, it was really great having you thank you so much for having me and I really enjoyed myself and um, that was some good conversations <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah. And uh, thank you for listening to, to the podcast. Um, stay tuned for the, for the next episode. And remember that every good friend was once a stranger. <laughs> <laughs>